Bloody Elbow presents the Hey Not The Face podcast, the show that brings you the business side of combat sports, including contract review, financial analysis, fighter pay issues, and more. Hey Bloody Elbow podcast Substack subscribers will hear bonus content if available at the end of the broadcast. Be sure to subscribe at bloodyelbow.substack.com for our newsletter and at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com for our podcast network. Follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at facebook.com slash bloodyelbowblog, and as always, on bloodyelbow.com. Thanks for listening. Here's your host, John S. Nash, joined by his producer, Steffi Haynes. Hello and welcome to Hey Not The Face with your host, John Nash, and your producer, me, Steffi Haynes. And today, we are going to talk about the class action lawsuit, the antitrust lawsuit. John, what happened? Well, today is a day that we've been waiting for a long time. Uh, And that day is the return of the cat. No, I'm just kidding. That cat did come back today. It's on my lap. So I, I'm kind of in a position where the audio might not be as good as I'd hope because I can't get close to the mic and I can't get my headphones on because the cat is on my lap. But anyways, uh, the uh, today is we finally, after years and years of waiting, I can't even remember when he said that he's got a class, he's got a written opinion. I mean, he's got an opinion on class or how, how long ago that was. But we finally got the written opinion. He's granted, officially granted Judge Bower. Uh, in the the Kung Lee versus Zupa lawsuit, the Lee versus Zupa antitrust lawsuit that they're trying to make a class action, he's officially granted class certification. Um, in other words, it's no longer a group of fighters, the small group of fighters, five fighters suing the UFC. It is now every UFC fighter that fits the definition of a class member of the bout class that got uh, that got certified. They are now automatically enrolled as plaintiffs in the case. They're not named plaintiffs. They're not the ones that are going to have to show up to court, but they're automatically enrolled. So if the plaintiffs win, all the damages, all those fighters are eligible for damages. Uh, so that's massive. It's something that uh, we, <laughs> I'm going through the whole thing. I'm, I'm, I don't know why it took this long. I didn't see anything in there that made me think it needed extra work. Uh, all the information seems from previous, we've had for a while. But we finally have uh, a cl- the class has been certified and the case gets to move forward. All right. You mentioned uh, the different types of classes. And from what I understand, there are two identity class and bout class. Please break down the difference in identity class and bout class. Well, the bout class is those fighters that fought in the UFC and, and or under Zupa uh in north america or televised in north america i believe that's the definition the, the definition they had for it, uh between the dates of december 16 2010 until june 30th 2017 so roughly 1200 fighters are fit that definition of fighters that fought in the ufc they're they're in the bout class the accusation is that the ufc used their their market power their monopsony power and monopoly power to suppress the wages of those fighters, so those 1,200 fighters who fought in the UFC at that time, are uh, the fights that they had during that time too, are eligible for damages as the case go forward. The other class is called the identity class. Those are, during the same period, it's a smaller group of fighters, but those are fighters that the UFC used their image in various merchandise, video games, things like that. Uh, during that same period, 
And but that because of various reasons, one, it was harder to track. There was a smaller group of fighters, hard, harder to track from his different revenue sources, who was getting what. The judge decided that that class, the damages are not specific enough across the board, that that class is not going to be certified. And so all those fighters are eliminated. It, there's a lot of crossover between the two groups. But for the named plaintiffs, it eliminates uh, Nathan Corey is one of the named plaintiffs. So now the named plaintiffs are just Kung Lee, John Fitch, Brandon Vera, Javier Vasquez, and Kyle Kingsbury. Okay. There's a, something in there that you, you made note of. You said it on TV. So for those fighters that were fighting in the UFC and maybe they fought in foreign countries and maybe they only had one or two fights and maybe those one or two fights were overseas, as long as it was aired in the United States, say a pay-per-view or a fight night or whatever, then that would count, correct? That's the that's the way it should count. And my understanding is I looked there once and I don't think there's any fights that they had outside the UFC that weren't broadcast in the UFC. So basically... Anybody that fought for the UFC un, uh, under a Zufa promotion at the time, because that includes some of the Strike Force fights, mm-hmm. is eligible for um, is a, is automatically enrolled as a as a class member. Let's talk about contracts and compensation. What should we be aware of regarding contracts and compensation? Well, this was pretty interesting because he he went through a lot of stuff that's no surprise to anybody listening to this show when we talk about contracts. He went through, you know, how the system they work. You have a, a show, and, and you put in quotations, a show amount to participate in the bout, and then a, a, a win bonus payment if you win, uh, all the different tools in the UFC contract. But he talked about something that's not brought up a lot, and one is is that the, the fighters have no control over their careers in the contract. The UFC dictates terms all the time, right? Um, so that's a big Big part of the the problem, uh, the power. They also they pointed out that the UFC Zupa ut- utilized the tiered system of payments, right? So, for independent contractors and stuff, this was a good evidence that the UFC basically could dictate the price because they knew what every guy would get paid based on where they are on the scale. They talked about how the fighters are not, you know, employees; they're independent contractors. Um, because of that, they have to pay for their own training, uh, all their own stuff. And because of that also their careers are short, they're more dependent on the UFC. So it, it was interesting that they brought up a lot of the stuff we talk about that you don't hear other people talk about much. Uh, about basically the, the status of how important a matchmaker is and stuff. Uh, the other thing they brought pointed out, is, you know, again, something we talk about on the show is the fighters typically sign contracts with Zupa either for a minimum period of time or for a specific number of bouts. Important and pursuant to the contracts, the timing and bounce and matching opponents was determined unilaterally by Zupa, right? Consequently, this means that the the PAR agreement, professional uh, promotional agreement, uh, generally do not guarantee, for instance, a minimum number of fights per year. Right. And do not guarantee a minimum salary for each fighter. And so the whole thing about three fights a year, we have to guarantee, the courts are pointing out that is not the truth. There's no... There's no guarantee of how many fights you have to get, and there's that means you fighters have no idea what they're going to make per year going in. So all that kind of interesting, it kind of shows how much little leverage the fighters have in this situation. You had <laughs> predicted that this would happen in August, only three years back when you know the judge was like right on the cusp of giving his written piece. And it took him three yeah. years, but you still got the yeah. month right. I got the month right. I got the month right. It's a good thing I didn't say what year it was at the time because 
I can now lay claim that I got it right as a, what is it, uh, Ginger Snapped? Well, the Twitter handle wrong, but she pointed out I said August, and okay. I did not say the year, even though the implication at the time was probably 2020 or 2021. And you were speaking of snarky ginger. She's an awesome person. I apologize, but I I talk with her, interact with her on Twitter a lot, but it's hard to remember bizarre Twitter handle names. (laughs) She's a good chick. I want to ask you a question that might be a little off key here, but uh, it's it's important to get it out there and to find out if there's some way that this antitrust suit can provide some kind of solution to what happened in Utah. Just you know, this past week or uh, past two weeks where that there's a confidentiality agreement that fighters enter into or they can decline because fork fighters did decline, but to guard how much they are paid. And they they cited trade secrets and things like that for the UFC, um, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it was clearly a whole big line of bullshit, but I'm wondering since we're speaking about contracts and compensation, if this turns out the way that the fighters want it, the, if, if the plaintiffs are successful, is there in any way that that could be impacted or is that just completely something that the UFC is working out with the commissions? Yeah, that has nothing to do with the case okay. per se, but there is a chance because the idea of the case is to is to weaken the UFC. Yes, that's where the, I was going. Not, I should point out, not weaken like the 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 promotion and the revenue because the, the whole idea is to give the fighters more power so they can get more revenue. Mm-hmm. But that the UFC does not have the ability to do what we call regulatory capture, which is they're doing because yeah. the UFC has all the fighters, all the money. The 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 commissions, if they want. Any sort of MMA of combat sports event in their state that generates any money, they've got to cater to what the UFC says. So the point, I guess the suit would be like, we want to have it that uh, multiple promotions are out there that you are not you are not beholden to just the UFC. The UFC cannot say a jump and you say how high in the future. That That's a possible what they're shooting for. But, you know, I don't know if that'll happen in the, the case. But. At the same time, um, yeah, the the stuff like that with the the athletic commissions, the, this case has no bearing on it. So this this case, no matter how it shook out, couldn't possibly help help that situation at all. Yeah, no. not only in an indirect way. If, if at the end, yeah, result that's what I mean, the, and that, that's what I'm saying. In, in some indirect fashion, could it somehow tri- like a trickle down effect of the truth? You know what I mean? Well, I mean, and like again, like as I described, the indirect method would be like the UFC no longer has such power over the market mm-hmm. that they can, because basically it's the UFC. We know it's the UFC telling these commissions not to report this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. The only way if this case would affect it, if it goes all the way through the end, the fighters win, the UFC is no longer as powerful in the space that they can dictate to the commissions to do that, then indirectly, because of this case, then athletic commissions might decide to start revealing uh, uh, pay again. But it would not be the result of the case, per se. Okay. Would it be fair to say, like, if the Ali Act was enabled for MMA with that? somehow that might more because in some states they re, they reveal boxing person stuff inside the ali act implications that the ali act uh dictates that they're supposed to now some states say it doesn't but some states 
because that they do it and also because the General Accounting Office has a specific report that says disclosure is what the purpose of the Alley Act is. We need more disclosure to help fighters. And so some, you know, that's a tool that some you can wave in commission's faces to get them to go along to release boxing purses more often. Mm-hmm. But um, no, again, it's not that, that unless there's an enforcement mechanism that's enhanced something with the Alley Act, uh, the commissions generally are kind of ignoring the Alley Act at times. Okay. So we talked about compensation and contracts and even indirect relations to that. Let's talk about Zufa's dominance in the market and how the judge viewed it. Yeah, well, they they basically dictated how the UFC has a market share of approximately 90% of the revenue since mm-hmm. 2008, uh, which is de facto market power. So when people say, you know... Um, I'm not going to say monopoly anymore because people get confused by that. You know, they'll, they'll look up Webster's Dictionary and say, oh, they're not a monopoly because it says you need one buyer. You're like, well, the court system doesn't quite work that way. We, we refer to things as monopolies that aren't the only buyer uh, or only a seller. I should say a monopsy is only the only buyer. But if I say market power means said market power means you control the industry. You control the how prices are set, right? Mm-hmm. UFC has 90% of the revenue. That's like <laughs> almost twice the necessary amount you need for the, the basically to go, yep, that's got, that's someone with market power that has monopoly and monopsy power. So they're, they blow past. In fact, for almost the entire period they started the class, the big three rivals of the UFC, Strikeforce, Bellator, and World Series of Fighting, never once combined for more than 9% of the revenues. Wow. So all together, their best year, they had one-tenth what the UFC was bringing in. Now, it's what's interesting is the judge is pretty clear. It's a pretty harsh uh, opinion he wrote here, this, this written opinion. Because he goes after stuff like he talks about the – uh, nebulous factors and predatory of the UFC. But one of my thought was very interesting. He talks about how the stuff like the promoters acumen or the special sauce promotions basically is unsupported. In other words, the UFC's position is not because they're just amazing promoters, that they don't have some special secret, you know, that they don't know what they're doing so much better. So he, he knocks that down. He says they have market power. They dominated the market because of their actions. Uh, that's not to say they're going to win the case automatically, you know, going forward, because there's math involved in this case. There's things called regressions, and you've got to you got to prove like uh, how we came to these conclusions, or how how do we determine how much the fighter should have got? But things of like how the UFC acted to take over the markets, uh, like in, uh, one comment quote he had is these findings, which the court credits, demonstrates defendant's dominance in the input and output market. It further establishes how Zufa's dominance in the output market, the selling, right, enhanced its ability to suppress compensation in the input market. Now the court has found that the plaintiffs have established defendant's dominance in the market. The court moves on to analyze evidence of competitors' natural and artificial barriers to entries. In other words, it, it, it right there they state outright that they basically the UFC has, has dominated the market, monopsy and monopoly. It's it's a foregone conclusion that they have market power. The question now is we have to look at is what barriers of entry have they put in place to make sure they retain that and make it harder for competitors to spring up? I like one of the things that he said, and I quote, unfettered power to suppress pay. Yes, yes. I mean, again, he has a lot of this stuff. Basically, there are some harsh comments in this. It's not I. 
that's a little strong, probably not hard, but very strong, strong comments basically about how the UFC's power is basically blatantly, um, blatantly operating this way, blatantly doing stuff that would be viewed as court, a, a violation of the like the Sherman Act or some other, you know, c- contractual law and stuff that we, you're not expected to behave like this. And, and especially when you have this kind of market power. Now, the question going forward, and again, will be when we get to the math parts. But he again and again, he was pretty he was pretty blatant about that, that he found this the evidence overwhelming by the plaintiffs that the UFC's actions were anti-competitive. Tell me about barriers to entry specifically regarding talent. Yes, the three main barriers of evidence uh, entry he cites are uh, for competitors are course of contracts that restrict the overall supply of fighters. Right. Lack of cross promotion and dominance in the headliner market. So the barriers of entry is the break it down as the course of contracts is you cannot get access to these fighters, right? Because they're all signed to exclusive contracts, the UFC that those fighters can't get out of. Um, the lack of co-promotion is let's say you have a great fighter, right? And you want to put on a big fight and build up your fighter and make revenue. The UFC will never co-promote. So your fighter has no access again to these top fighters that can make him a bigger fighter. And finally, their dominance, what's called the headliner market. All the top fighters are signed with the UFC. So even if, again, if you're building a fighter that could potentially has the potential to be a massive star, all the headliners are signed. The, all the other fighters that they'd be put against to make that guy a star or a bigger star are with the UFC, preventing you from building up your uh, competing promotion. Tell me about anti-competitive behavior to maintain that monopsony. There's just a, an, an endless amount of anti-competitive behavior. Uh, if we go through, I mean, some of the anti-competitive behavior is they bought out their rivals, right? What's interesting, he points out, they bought out these rivals, and they made claims that we went to get them the fighters, but point, he really buys into the, the argument that their purchase of these rivals, there was no justification on the basis of, of competitive reasons. In other words, they didn't buy them because it, 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 it gave them stronger competition in the um, – uh, it built up the MMA spear in some way to made made MMA better. They bought them up to take these fighters or these promotions off the landscape so that the fighters themselves couldn't use them to push up their wages. And also that way that the, the those promotions could ever build themselves into a potential rival or, you know, than the UFC. So it's again, a, a kind of a damning statement, uh, you know, they go through many of the reasons how they used anti-competitive building, uh, anti-competitive uh, conduct, again, mostly through exclusory contracts, which kept the fighters locked up uh, through. Then they use uh, they also did it through extra contractual methods, make fighters contracts effectively perpetual. Uh, so they did all these things so the fighter couldn't leave the contract. You couldn't get out. We've talked about this again and again on the show, the way this, you know, how they do that tolling provisions or offering them fights they don't want, stuff like that. And third and final, we brought up the acquisition and shutting down arrivals. So you put those three together, contracts that are, you know, that are basically locked up fighters or owner contract, and then you use extra contractual methods to make sure the fighters are basically perpetual, can't get out of those contracts, and then you acquire the rival promotions. That's going to give you a lot of power over the sphere. And I think this is the part people miss. It's that is the behavior that they're arguing is is a violation of the Sherman Act. You can have a monopoly. There's nothing illegal in the a monopoly power, I should say. You can have monopoly power because I don't want to confuse people that pick up the Webster's Dictionary and go after us again. You can have market power, monopoly or monopsy power. 
It's not illegal if you acquire it a certain way. What is illegal is intentionally going out of your way to acquire it, right? What is illegal is is intentionally trying to retain it by doing methods to retain that market power and abusing it. And and as we go through this whole thing, they go again and again and again how the UFC basically violated all three of those, that they intentionally did stuff like make contracts specifically a way to make sure that they would retain the fighters and get market power and bought out rival promotions for that intent, that they intentionally uh, attempted to retain it by, again, going after rival promotions to make sure they got put out of business or acquired or or, or making sure that fighters couldn't go anywhere else to, to, to potentially create rival promotions. And third, they abused it by using techniques that we described before. It's an abuse of your market power to have all that money and leverage and basically dictate terms to fighters that way, using all that. The, that's the, All three of those are a violation. And again and again and again, they go through that, oh, how the UFC abused it. And recently, we, we had a comparison like this. We talked about it with the Leave PGA. Uh, what they're accusing them of doing is that the PGA is merging with Leave, so they're not competing with each other anymore, right? And that's a violation of the Sherman Act. That's what the argument is. And this is what they're kind of claiming what the UFC did is they're violating the Sherman Act by, you know, not merging with a, a parallel promotion, but in this case, putting out a business and taking off the landscape, uh, potential rival promotions or other promotions that have top fighters or name value or whatever. So, and then it goes on and on about the, the matchmakers, how the matchmakers have tremendous power. Because I think I mentioned that earlier because they get to pick who the fighter's opponent is, the placement on the card, uh, either they'll be on a pay-per-view or televised. So, all that control over a fighter's career makes the fighters, you know, uh, it's just a tremendous amount of control over a fighter. It's not like being a, knowing ahead of time on your contract what your what's your responsibility is going to be. It's basically you are at the whim of your promoter of how your career is going to go from this point on, and and that gives them a lot of control. As we've seen, as we know, as fighters won't, you know, they won't talk about. Uh, Anything that pisses them off publicly, they won't say because they're at risk that the UFC will not will not give them the one of those bonuses or a better contract or a sponsorship. You know, that's one thing for those four fighters from the Utah card that actually allowed their their pay to be disclosed. One of them was the lowest paid guy on on the on the uh, card, and that was Gabriel Bontheme. He only made twelve and twelve, and he was brave enough to let hit to say, "No, I want mine out there." Yeah, no, but it's understandable. I mean, they spelled it out. I think they have a, a section they spelled out because Zufa fighters did not get paid unless they fought. And talking about Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, right? Yeah. This enabled Zufa to use various strategies relating to the timing, placement, number, and, and opponents of a fighter's bout to coerce fighters into renewing their contracts early or extending their contracts in order to earn a paycheck. There's our real world, real time correlation right there. Stephen Thompson is a perfect example that's happening right now. Let's talk about wage share versus wage level. Okay, let's. <laughs> so uh, wage share, this is the one of the arguments in the case. This is what makes this case kind of unique because... To access the bonus content of this show, you must be a paid subscriber. To do that, go to bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com and subscribe today.
Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Podcast production. Subscribe at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com. Give us your email and receive notifications when your favorite shows drop straight into your inbox. We're also found on a wide variety of podcast outlets. Just search for Bloody Elbow Podcast and you will get new shows throughout the week, including the MMA Bunker and MMA Tete-a-Tete shows with Kid Nate, the Level Change Podcast, the Hey Not the Face Podcast, the MMA Vivisection Main Card and Prelims UFC Preview Shows, the Sixth Round Post Fight Show, the Show Money Podcast, and the MMA Depressed Us.